introduction to Homer's Odyssey, books 14 to 16, slides 187 to 210. Recall where we were last time. Odysseus had finally been taken by the Phaeacians on one of their ships while he was asleep to the south entrance, uh, or the south harbor of Ithaca, which is only used by the gods. So some connection between the Phaeacian ships and divinity. Recall that the Phaeacians are themselves related to giants and to Poseidon. They are related to divinity. And recall that also the Phaeacians, because of their great hospitality to Odysseus, are being punished, which is sort of interesting because you notice that with the Lystrigones, or the Lystrigones, that they don't really get punished for not offering hospitality to Odysseus. And uh, Polyphemus, though he gets blinded, also doesn't really receive a terrible punishment. So uh, part of what you may start to see here is that sometimes when you do the right thing, you are not rewarded for doing the right thing uh, extraneously. And that may be uh, what Homer is going for here. Perhaps sometimes because you are good does not mean that good things always come to you. Perhaps the right thing to do is something that uh, uh, perhaps it is of its own value. Um, but we can consider that more in seminar tomorrow. So Odysseus, recall that he returned to Ithaca. He woke up. There was a mist, and he did not recognize where he was. A young shepherd approached him, but that shepherd was actually Athena in disguise, and they had a discourse. Odysseus was a little upset with him. Why is it that you have not been with me for these last 10 years, and she corrects him a little bit. She says, well, actually, I was on Olympus trying to help you out, and I'm the one that got you freed from Calypso, and as you recognize, I was there in Scoria to lead you towards Alphanoas' house, and I've been helping your son out quite a bit. So I haven't exactly been uh, uh, idle in these years that you've been working. And then uh, they, uh, they, they regain their affection for each other and start to plot the death of the 108 suitors, uh, which will be quite the feet of Odysseus's. And recall, Odysseus is then disguised. He's turned into an old, vagabond-looking beggar, probably just like how he would have looked when he, in disguise, went uh, into uh, Troy to get information about stealing the Palladium, which he later would do with the help of Helen and Diomedes. Alright, let's get started today. And um, so, one uh, pre prefatory comment I should make now is that if you are the sort of person that likes to divide things, uh, the Odyssey can be divided, I would say, into three different parts. The first part, the first four books that focus on Telemachus are called the Telemachy. And they focus on Telemachus and his sort of uh, budding relationship with Athena, his learning about hospitality, his learning about himself, and it's sort of a small story of what the Germans call Bildungsroman, of character development. Well, the second part of the story focuses on Odysseus, his journey to Scoria, his story about his journeys before or prior to Scoria, um, and his journey home to Ithaca. Those are books 5 to um, 13 or so. Well, the last 10 books, it's interesting. A lot of people that don't read the Odyssey think the entire story is the story of Odysseus' adventures. But the final 10 books, the final 10 chapters of the Odyssey, will focus on oh, Odysseus and his uh, maneuvers and his machinations at home in Ithaca. And sort of a philosophical question to keep in your mind and to think about tomorrow during seminar is, is Odysseus home yet? And what is home? He is certainly on Ithaca. But the place that he calls home is currently infested with suitors. And uh, they are very much willing to kill Telemachus in order to get Penelope. And they will soon show that they are very much willing to kill Odysseus in order to get Penelope. Is his home actually his home, his house in Ithaca? Or is it a hostile enemy camp? And uh, is his home, like Troy, somewhere that he will have to take by guile and by force? Now, we are going to meet today, a very humble figure named Eumaeus. He's a swineherd. He, he herds pigs, which means it's, it's a dirty profession. He's also a slave. Now, a couple of things I want you to know about him, though, 
because I want to draw some parallels between him and Odysseus, are these. Eumaeus was not always a slave. He was actually the son of a rich man in Sidonia. But uh, one of the slaves of his father was a Phoenician woman who met some sailors down by the harbor, lay with one of those sailors, and then uh, uh, contrived with him to steal Eumaeus, to then sell him for money because he was a noble's son, to ransom him off uh, after sailing on their ship. Unfortunately, or, or perhaps uh, justly, she dies. Artemis shoots her with her arrows while she's on the ship, and uh, Eumaeus is sold off to Laertes, the father of Odysseus. And um, Eumaeus is actually raised with Odysseus and his uh, sister, who we know is married to Eurylochus, or at least used to be Eurylochus, now is very much dead, Catimony. And so, uh, just a couple of things I want you to know about this Eumaeus. Even though he is a slave, even though he is the lowest of the low in terms of class distinctions, he was born royal-ish. He, uh, he also has been treated very much like Odysseus. A couple other things, just to keep in mind very closely, are these. He has also been on Ithaca over the last 20 years, while Odysseus has not. And uh, he has been a father-like figure to Telemachus. In fact, in front of Odysseus, in disguise, when Telemachus gets back in Book 16, he will address Eumaeus, not Odysseus, as father. And so what I want you to start thinking about is, um, A, to what extent is your character subject to fate? And B, to what extent is your rank subject to fate? Odysseus, obviously a king and a noble war hero. And yet, what have the last ten years of his life looked like? He's been a captive. He's been on rafts. He's uh, essentially been something like a slave, whereas Eumaeus has actually been at his own home, has known Telemachus, has been a part of Telemachus being raised. Perhaps even though Eumaeus is a slave, he has had a better life than Odysseus. And uh, these are the sorts of connections I want you to start making. And in fact, Eumaeus is a typical figure in uh, folklore, fairy tales, and uh, mythology. In fact, there's a very uh, recent figure like him. He is the figure of the rustic savage who has virtues that uh, cultivated city dwellers do not. In fact, if you watch The Mandalorian recently, there is very much a character. He is a blurg farmer rather than a, sw a swine herder. Does anybody recall the name of this character? Anybody seen? The Mandalorian. Well, if you do, you'll see in the very first episode that there's a character very similar to Eumaeus who helps out uh, the city slicker uh, uh, Mandalorian who is a bounty hunter who's in some ways similar to Odysseus. In any case, here's a nice base painting of Eumaeus. He's got some weird looking pigs. Students always think, are those really pigs? Uh, apparently those are Greek pigs. Uh, <laughs> Alright. A couple more things. As Odysseus approaches Eumaeus, Odysseus' own dogs, who have never known him because he's been gone for 20 years, we will meet one of the dogs that did know him. It will be a very sad moment. It will be in the next lecture. His name is Argos. He'll actually die when he sees Odysseus. He'll die after wagging his tail and recognizing him. That's very sad. Um, but it will also be a symbol for what Ithaca has become in the absence of Odysseus. As Odysseus approaches, and I think this is a strong also symbol for how, what Ithaca has become, and what it has become towards Odysseus. It has become antagonistic towards its former king. The dogs actually run at him, and you might imagine they're the sorts of dogs that, these, they guard sheep, so they, they'd be something savage, like a, like a Rottweiler or a German Shepherd, something that could do some damage to you if it jumped on you, and they are running to maul Odysseus. The first thing Eumaeus does is he calls them and makes them sit. 
So we know about Umias that even though he's poor, even though he's a slave, even though he's technically serving the suitors by sending them his pigs, uh, which are Odysseus's pigs, to eat, that he will offer hospitality. In fact, he says even though he's a slave, he has no right not to offer what he has to, um, to a guest. And so Odysseus, who's now making a list of people who he can trust and people who he will be killing, is going to put Umias on the good list, not on the bad list. And only a very few people will make it onto the not-get-killed-by-Odysseus list. And so Umias is right, making the right moves. Um, that said, what is it that I want to say next? Uh, about Umias. Okay, well, Odysseus is eventually, after he's fed and uh, not mauled by the, uh, <laughs> the uh, dogs and allowed into Umias' home, Umias finally gets to asking him, Who are you? Where do you come from? And, well, Odysseus, remember, he's in disguise. He doesn't know who he can trust yet. He can't tell the truth, so he's put in a bit of a spot. He has to tell a story. And now, this is where I want you to be very much aware. Please open your books to uh, the page I told you. I think it's 214, 215. <coughs> 215, thank you. Odysseus is now in this new location where he has just received hospitality going to tell a story. A four-page long story. It's a lie. I'm not going to give you a definitive answer to this, but recall what he's just been doing over several books, from I think books 7 through 13 or so. He's been telling stories to the Phaeacians who offered him hospitality. He told stories to them so that they would give him a shift. Well, he has to tell stories to Umias so he can be sent from the pig farm up to Ithaca. A question that might pop into your head is... If the story he's telling to Umias in order to get to Ithaca is not true, was the story that he told of his adventures going through the Cicones, the Lystragones, the Cyclopes, the Lotus Eaters, the Aeolian Bag, the Skill and Cribbis Sirens, and Thrinicia? Were any of those stories true? You might say, why would he lie? And I'd say, well, he did lose all his ships and all his men. Perhaps the truth is even uglier than the story. In any case, let's take a look at this lie. I'm not going to read the entire thing because it would take like 10 minutes to read this. Uh, but I just want you to be impressed by um, uh, just how quickly he can come up with this story. Take a look at, uh, around the middle of the page. It's line 192. Then resourceful Odysseus spoke and turned and answered him. See, I will accurately answer all that you ask me. Yeah, he'll accurately answer indeed. I only wish there were food enough for the time for us too, and sweet wine for us here inside of the shelter, so that we could feast quietly while others tended the work. He says, I like telling stories. Recall that Odysseus is a fan of storytellers. Demodocus, recall, uh, the uh, storyteller and singer of the fire cans, he gave the best cut of meat to the, pink, the pig tenderloin. Yeah, uh, then easily I could go on for the whole of a year, very like Scheherazade from the Thousand and One Nights. Do you know that story? Uh, the story of the Thousand and One Nights is that there was a woman, uh, there were women who would be brought to this sultan every night, and he would ask them to tell a story, but when they were done with their story, he would kill them the next morning. And so Scheherazade had to tell a different story every night in order not to be killed for a thousand and one nights, so I guess three years. But the idea is like essentially forever. In any case, Odysseus is that sort of storyteller. And still not finished the story of my heart's tribulation. All that hard work I've done in my time because all the goods the gods would will it. I announced that my origin is from Crete, a spacious land. I am the son of a rich man, and there were many other sons, blah, 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 blah. All right, turn four pages over to 219. He goes on and on and on about his trials and tribulations. 
But it was the gods who concealed me easily. This is the end. Uh, this is uh, line 356 or so. But it was the gods who concealed me easily. And it was they who brought me here to the setting of an understanding man. So now life is still my portion. And then, O oh, swineherd Eumaius, you answered the most sorrowful stranger. Truly you have troubled the spirit in me by telling me these details. Okay, so Odysseus has given himself an alibi. He has given himself a background. Eumaius is not to suspect that he is actually Odysseus. Though Odysseus will drop one detail in there. He says, during his travels, he did run into someone who knows about Odysseus, and that Odysseus is soon going to come back to Ithaca. This is a, sort of a double talk that we're going to see all throughout uh, the time in Ithaca. Odysseus himself will constantly be saying that Odysseus is coming back to Ithaca because it is certainly the case that Odysseus is at Ithaca. What's interesting is that people will often believe the lies Odysseus tells about his uh, origins in Crete, and he will claim that his name is Ithon, but they will not believe that Odysseus is going to come back. The reason being that charlatans and fake prophets have been coming to Ithaca over and over again and getting people's hopes up and then dashing them to the ground. They come... They realize that Penelope is vulnerable. They tell her a story about Odysseus coming back. She gets happy. She gives them gifts. They leave. He doesn't come back. It's sort of like a giant version of, what's that folk tale where somebody keeps saying something that's untrue, and then when the true thing happens, nobody believes him? The boy who cries wolf. Exactly, exactly. And you'll see that uh, uh, the noble or the trustworthy, the good characters like Eumaeus and Penelope, they become very world-weary to this idea. They've, uh, they've become very pessimistic. Uh, there's even a better word to, for this, but in any case, they they no longer believe that it is possible that Odysseus is going to come home, even though Penelope is obviously acting as if she thinks that Odysseus might someday come home by not yet taking a husband. And so, um, uh, we start to find out that it's not simply Odysseus that has gone through struggles, physical struggles, emotional struggles, losing his men, uh, terrible struggles of endurance with his belly, but that uh, there's another sort of struggle that you can endure. That even when you're at your own home, that if there's something missing, that if there's someone you love missing, and you don't know where they are, and you don't know when they're going to come back, that that itself is a sort of suffering. A sort of suffering in uh, a limbo. A place between places. It's almost, and in fact, Dante, who you'll read next year, will call limbo, in Canto Four of the Inferno, a part of hell. So, if it is the case that Odysseus has gone through something like a living hell, it is also the case that those who love him back at home, Telemachus, Eumaeus, we'll meet a guy named Philoetius, I'm probably just called Felicius, uh, uh, and Penelope have also uh, endured their own struggles. And I think this is uh, important to say to you because it's like, <laughs> no matter where you are in the world, what do you have to deal with? Some sort of struggle, some sort of suffering, that's right. Unless you happen to be on Ogygia. All right, all right. Uh, okay, so just one interesting thing that transpires between Eumaeus in Odysseus, and you can tell that there's sort of some affection between them. Eumaeus obviously likes Telemachus a lot, and something we've heard about Telemachus is he's a lot like Odysseus. His hands, his feet, his, the looks of his eyes look like Odysseus. He speaks sort of like Odysseus, even though he, he's never known his father. Well, uh, Odysseus seems to have fun talking to Eumaeus, and he says, okay, well, if uh, Eumaeus is like, I don't believe that Odysseus is coming back. You don't need to lie to me. I'm going to give you hospitality just because Zeus protects you. you there's no reason to do that. And uh, Odysseus says, okay, okay, okay. If I am lying, if Odysseus doesn't come back in the next week or so, then why don't you just uh, throw me off a cliff? And Eumaeus says, ha, that's pretty good, stranger. That'd win me a great reputation if somebody came to my house to get Zinnia and then I threw them off a cliff. And Odysseus is like, okay, okay, how about this? How about a positive reward? If Odysseus does come back, give me a tunic and a mantle. 
And, uh, well, it, it'll end up being the case that actually Eumaeus is rewarded for Odysseus coming back. He'll end up being freed from slavery, given a wife, and given a home. And so he, he's working to his great advantage. He, unlike the Phaeacians, will receive a major advantage from helping Odysseus, even though uh, times will look dark. Because recall that it will be Eumaeus at one point, Telemachus and Odysseus versus 108 suitors, which are not good odds uh, by, by any estimate. In any case, let's keep moving. Uh, Eumaeus, uh, as I was saying, prepares some food, sacrifices to Hermes. That's an important moment. Notice how often that when the men eat, they sacrifice to the gods. It's sort of like saying prayer, saying grace in our time and day, uh, uh, indicating that you serve the gods, that you, you find them holy. Uh, it is noted, and we have noted, that one of the issues in the Odyssey is that when you eat at an inappropriate time or eat an inappropriate thing or eat in an inappropriate way, it leads to death. Well, one uh, comment made about the suitors is that they often do not sacrifice. They are eating in somebody else's home, and they are unwelcome in that home, which suggests that they, like Odysseus' crewmen, and, uh, may, may be led towards disaster. And uh, Actually, the, uh, the signs are going to mount up. Penelope is going to have a dream of an eagle killing the suitors, which will then interpret itself as Odysseus killing the suitors. The dream interprets itself. It's very uh, heavy-handed. Uh, uh, Telemachus, and we're going to see this later today, is going to be the uh, great-grandson of a prophet named Amphiaraeus, who is actually literally going to predict that the suitors are going to die after they get into a crazy laughing fit. Sign after sign after sign is going to indicate that the suitors are soon going to die. Besides the fact that Athena has straight up said that she's going to help Odysseus kill them. And if Athena can help Odysseus sack Troy, the greatest Asiatic uh, land in existence, 10 years ago, 20, uh, yeah, 10 years ago at this point, well then probably she can help him deal with 100 uh, punk suitors who have never seen battle. In any case, um, Odysseus tells a second lie after dinner. After dinner, it starts to get a little cold. And he's trying to sleep, but you know, it's hard to sleep when you're cold. So he tells a story about how he once was given a cloak by Odysseus. Uh, and uh, Eumaeus gets the thrust of this story. He's like, okay, why is he talking about getting a cloak? Why is he t talking about tricking some guy into getting a cloak? Uh, and, well, he must be cold. And so Eumaeus uh, gives him an extra mantle to wear. A mantle is like a cloak and therefore a blanket. And so Odysseus is telling lie after lie to Eumaeus, but he's enjoying the conversation with him. Eumaeus seems to be uh, a pretty interesting guy. And recall that Eumaeus is, in many ways, very, very similar to Odysseus, especially in that both of their fates have been negative in certain ways. Odysseus missing the childhood of his son 20 years with his young wife, who is new to him, and uh, uh, has become poorer in the interim because of these suitors eating up his food. Eumaeus, obviously born a noble, now a slave. And yet, Eumaeus will not die a slave. And yet, uh, Odysseus will not always look like an old vagabond who has to rely on the hospitality of his own slaves. He will one day be king again. All right, boom, back to book 15. Now we're back in Sparta. Athena has to go down to see uh, Telemachus to let him know it's time to get home. You've gone out from Ithaca to Pylos, then to Sparta. But now, Telemachus, you need to rush home because... Uh, there's someone there that you need to meet, and there's something there that you need to do. You need to meet Odysseus, you need to kill the suitors. And so, Athena visits Telemachus in the night and tells him, uh, you need a sense of urgency. Penelope is, within the next several days, going to marry a suitor. But your dad's still alive, so that's a, that'll be a major problem for both her and dad. Also, the suitors have set an ambush for you. They are attempting to kill you, which means 
that it is now uh, within the realm of Xenia for Telemachus to fight back, to attack them back. In fact, in our legal code, if somebody breaks into your house, you are allow allowed to use necessary force to deal with them. So if somebody breaks into your house and they have a weapon and you shoot them, for example, uh, depending on the jury, which is something you always need to keep in mind, you are technically legally allowed to do that sort of thing. But if you take a weapon out on the street and just take someone out for whatever reason, uh, not allowed. <laughs> in any case, here I think an interesting detail is that Athena tells Telemachus that he needs to hurry, but she doesn't give him specific instructions for how. He's going to have to wrap up his meeting with Menelaus very quickly here, and he'll receive some interesting gifts from him, and a very interesting gift from Helen, which I'll ask you a little bit about. But then he's supposed to go back to Pilots. Remember, the chariot he has was given to him by Nestor, and he is still with the son of Nestor named Pisistratos. Technically, Xenia mean, uh, dictates that he should go back and uh, stay in the home of Nestor, but he understands that he needs to hurry, and so he doesn't. And so he has to make a choice to go against convention a little because he has a more uh, prevailing concern. Nestor will be a little bit upset with him, but I think after Nestor hears what he accomplishes with his father and why he neglected to see him again, he'll understand. But in the moment, he probably would not have. It'd be like if you skipped my class because you had to, uh, I don't know, uh, study for the SAT or something like that. I might be upset that you skipped my class, but in, in the grand scheme of things, probably uh, that big test is a little bit more important for that particular day. In any case, Telemachus wakes up. He was told all this in a dream, gets Pesistratos to wake up. It's still in the middle of the night. Pesistratos says, wait till the morning, man. Then we'll go. And that's when we do. So, back down in the court. We're now there with Menelaus, Helen, uh, an abundance of servants, Pesistratos, and Telemachus. Telemachus says, I've got to go. And uh, uh, Menelaus says, you know, do you have to go? Why don't we just travel through all the great places in Argos? And that's a fantastic uh, offer. That would be like you after high school. S some people do this. Um, uh, being offered a chance to, like, say, hike through all of Europe. That's like a fantastic thing that you can do. Two or three months, go and see Spain, Italy, Argentina. Or, is that a place in there? No, I'm just kidding. Not Argentina, of course. Uh, Spain, Italy, uh, France, Germany, or even just one of those uh, countries. Just hiking through it. Seeing a new place. That's the idea that... Uh, uh, um, uh, Menelaus is giving to Telemachus. And recall that Telemachus is the son of Odysseus, who's himself an adventurer. He's offering him a new adventure and an escape from his responsibilities. Very tempting sort of offer. That said, Telemachus, uh, like Odysseus, uh, keeps his responsibilities. He says, that's a, that's a very generous offer, Menelaus, but no, I have to go home. I have to take care of business first. So uh, uh, Helen then... <laughs> And I think this is interesting. Menelaus offers a gift or two, but Helen offers the most interesting gift. Now, when I tell you the gift she offers, I want you to remember her history with marriage. She was first married to Menelaus, and then she was stolen or went willingly with Paris. Then she was married to Deiphobus after Paris was killed by Philoctetes, and uh, then and only then did she go back to Menelaus. What she offers to Telemachus uh, besides a Hephaestian bowl, a bowl made by Hephaestus, which is very high quality, is a robe for the woman that Telemachus marries. Two interesting things about that. One is, think about how deeply you would blush if the most beautiful woman in the world, Helen, gave you a robe for your potential wife. What would that mean that she saw you as? A little toddler, baby? Or as perhaps an attractive man? 
who arouses thoughts of marriage in a Helen. And we do know that she will leave one man for another. And uh, so that's sort of interesting. The second uh, thing I find interesting about this is I don't know exactly how I would feel personally about receiving a robe for the person I was going to marry from Helen because I don't know that that would be so much a blessing or perhaps a, a curse. In any case, an eagle then appears. This is one of those many portents. It catches a goose. And, ah, yes, Helen, then, apparently she can interpret signs just so, like, she can see the gods or recall that she saw uh, Aphrodite through her disguise in Book 3 of the Iliad. Um, she interprets this as meaning Odysseus will soon kill the suitors. But, I mean, just imagine that. I've seen the crows outside fight. They're pretty big birds, and they're pretty gnarly, and I've seen a couple of them fight against birds of prey before. But just imagine seeing, like, a giant eagle. Eagles are humongous. They can have wingspans over seven feet long. And uh, catch a goose with his long neck and just like, honk, you know, and tear into that. I mean, I'm, I mean, I know that's sort of vulgar and violent, but who doesn't like, uh, who would not watch that? Or at least be very tempted to watch that sort of thing. In any case, uh, the idea is that the suitors are the geese. Odysseus is the eagle. Eagle is a, it, you know, it has a very interesting history as a symbol all the way down to our time. It is the symbol of Zeus. It is the symbol of kingly authority. The Romans take it as their symbol. And then we, of course, took the bald eagle as our symbol because we believe that we have kingly authority, except for without a king. That's why our eagle is a bald eagle. It doesn't have a crown. In any case, moving on. Telemachus then sends Pisestratos to Nestor with his regrets. <laughs> My duty draws me home. Uh, hope your dad's not too mad. Uh, Pisestratos says he will be, um, but uh, too bad. Telemachus has to go... Uh, kill the suitors and meet his father for the first time, which uh, I think Nestor would understand. If he were reading the Odyssey, I think he would agree with this decision. Obviously, he's a very wise man, though he will be upset at the uh, zinnia being crossed a little bit. Now, a very weird thing happens. As I told you, odd things are going to start mounting up. A man, out of nowhere, and some commentators believe that uh, there must have been more stories related to him that have been lost in the oral tradition, named Theoclimenus shows up and asks for a ride for Telemachus. The reason he shows up is that he is a murderer who killed someone in his homeland and has, to ha has had to expiate his sin. You have to be exiled from your home, go to a temple, make a tremendous sacrifice, and then you're cleansed of your sin. It's sort of like the Catholic idea of penance that we have these days, and also like the idea of going to a penitentiary, which we have in America these days. You commit a crime, you go to jail, lose some time, and then uh, you come back into the world. Well, Theoclimenos has been exiled. Interesting thing about him is that he has... Uh, derived from, he has descended from a very, very, very famous prophet. So, um, if Calchas is the most famous prophet from the Trojan War, the big war before that, there were two wars in the Age of Heroes, uh, was called the Seven at Thebes. And we will hear quite a bit about that when we go through the Oedipus cycle. We'll read Oedipus and Antigone together. Well, basically, there were these two sons named Eteocles and Polynices, and they were supposed to share uh, rulership of a place called Thebes. The same Thebes that you see in Hercules, uh, where he has to fight against the Hydra, his first major challenge after he's become a quote-unquote hero. Um, well, during this battle, seven great champions are, are summoned to the side of Eteocles. A couple of them are fathers of men that we know. Sthenelus' father, Capaneus, dies there. Also, Diomedes' father dies there, Tidius. Um, this man... Uh, uh, Amphiaraos, he, he died in sort of a, I would say, a, an unfortunate way. He could see the future and knew that he would die if he went to Thebes, but it was his, his wife, Eryphile, who was offered a very, very expensive necklace 
by Polynices to convince him to fight. Uh, she betrayed him, and he died because of his own wife's betrayal. And so again, uh, Agamemnon is uh, selectively correct. If one has a poor relationship with one's wife, she can be a very dangerous person. That said, uh, perhaps uh, we need to be a little bit more like Odysseus with Penelope. In any case, Theoclemenus is going to be sort of a part of the end of the book. Uh, we'll see him a couple more times, and then he'll just sort of disappear. Now, book 16. Telemachus has made it back. He survived the ambush. They didn't even see him. And, in fact, uh, Eurymachus is going to be, or Antinous, sorry, is going to be pretty upset about that. He's like, we did not fall asleep on the job. I don't know how he got by us uh, when he comes back uh, and talks to the suitors. As Telemachus approaches the house of Eumaeus, I want you to notice a couple very important details. I want you even to think about the notion of detail in a narrative. Why are details included in narratives, especially if they are fictional stories? What is it they're supposed to say? Every detail apparently matters. The first thing is that when the dogs see Telemachus, unlike how they reacted to Odysseus in disguise, they fawn on him, which means a couple things. A, they know him, which means he spends time going to talk to Eumaeus. It means he spends more time uh, uh, going down to be, or rather, at some time, he spent more time with Eumaeus, a sort of salubrious, good um, influence, than with the suitors. The second thing is that he's kind. Obviously, he's kind. Uh, animals like you more when you're kind to them. And uh, obviously, they like you more when you spend more time with them. And so, uh, something is being revealed of Telemachus's character just by how the dogs interact with him. Um, and, you know, there, uh, there's an old story... There was this famous Swiss psychologist, psychiatrist, technically from the 20th century, named Carl Jung, and he had two dogs. And uh, if you were going to come be analyzed by him, if they barked uh, vociferously at you, he would say that that was a mark of somebody who was psychotic. And so it's very interesting that animals can sometimes sense something about you that perhaps people can ignore or, or blind themselves to. In any case, the next thing I want you to note is that uh, Telemachus greets uh, Eumaeus in line 16 to 20 in book 16. Perhaps I'll open this, but without the book numbers at the bottom, it's hard to find things quickly, and yet I did. Uh, uh, as a father, and as a father, uh, hmm, let's, let me just, let me just re recount this to you. This sounds like what Odysseus would be doing with Telemachus, and yet it's Eumaeus, and it's all in front of Odysseus. And so I want you to think about the emotions of Odysseus in this moment. Odysseus is seeing everything that he has missed, everything that he does not have because of his adventures. He has made his name that is inscribed across the heavens forever, and yet he has lost something that he will never get again. His whole word had not been spoken when his beloved son stood in the forecourt. Amazed, the swineherd, Eumaeus, started up, and the vessels where he had been busily mixing the bright wine fell from his hand. He came up to meet his master and kissed his head and kissed to his beautiful shining eyes and both his hands, and the swelling tear fell from him. And as a father, this is a simile that should apply to Odysseus and Telemachus, but it doesn't. As a father, with heart full of love, welcomes his only and grown son, for whose sake he has undergone many hardships when he comes back in the tenth year from a distant country. Pretty heavy-handed simile. So now the noble swineherd, clinging fast to God like Telemachus, kissed him, even as if he had escaped dying. And in a burst of weeping, he spoke to him in winged words. And, wow. Uh, that's Emily. Uh, 
It could not be more heavy-handed in making connections to Odysseus. Like a father who's returned after ten years, suffering many hardships. It's like, who are you supposed to think about there? Obviously Odysseus. And yet, simile does not refer to Odysseus. It refers to Eumaeus, indicating that he has tremendous love for Telemachus, uh, and that he has fulfilled or filled the role of Odysseus in Telemachus' life, which uh, uh, I imagine doesn't feel that great for Odysseus, though he, he may very, be very much happy that at least somebody was kind to his son. In any case, Salomachus even addresses Eumaeus as father three times at line 31 in book 16, 57, and 130. Father, father, father. Hmm. Here's a nice picture. There's Eumaeus looking old. Uh, there's Telemachus looking pretty. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, divine. And there's old Odysseus looking like whatever. Uh, and there are the dogs who are like, rrr, 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 we like you. We'll eat that other guy. All right, good. Here's another picture of him. Again, the dogs looking all happy on him. Odysseus sort of looking grumpy, and uh, Eumaeus looking very happy to see him. It's almost like uh, Odysseus is split in two in this moment. What he would like to do with his son, how he would like to meet him, and what's actually happening. Uh, in any case, Telemachus then asks about the stranger. I'm going to have to cut this off probably a little earlier than I thought. Eumaeus says, oh, he's just some stranger from Crete. Says that he has news about your mother, wants to go up and see uh, the house. Telemachus says, well... Uh, I mean, I'd love to offer hospitality. He did obviously offer hospitality to Athena in the form of Mentes when she first showed up in book one. But the problem is there are these suitors here, and they might mistreat a new beggar. And we'll soon find out that there is a beggar already at home in Ithaca who will actually get into a beggar fight with Odysseus that the suitors will, uh, will arrange and uh, take great joy in watching. So, uh, uh, I would love to offer hospitality, but my home is not really fit for it right now, and he might be mistreated, and I don't know that I have the power or the authority right now to keep him from being mistreated. That would be a terrible thing uh, for a, a guest to be mistreated in my own house. Um, it's then mentioned, of course, and this was told to Telemachus in his dream, sent to him by Athena, that uh, Penelope is now currently considering marriage to a suitor, but she might also remain faithful, but it's getting soon, uh, the time is coming very soon for uh, Penelope to make a decision. Uh, that is going to happen in the next few days, in fact. And so, uh, time is of the essence. I'll probably end... Yeah, I'll probably end here today. Telemachus then suggests sending the stranger off with gifts, or just leaving him with Eumaeus. But this is not going to work for Odysseus, because he needs to make it to his home so that he can know who's loyal, who's disloyal, who he needs to kill in order to take his home back. He's not, he didn't get all the way back to Ithaca, stay in the figure of an old beggar man and live with Eumaeus, as great as Eumaeus seems to be. Uh, uh, as I said, uh, Telemachus says, well, the suitors might act too outrageously. They will act very outrageously. Even the slaves will act out outrageously. Uh, we'll see one slave named Melanthios kick him in the hip. We'll see another slave named Melantho talk smack to him not once, but twice. They're actually siblings. They'll both die, by the way. Uh, one of them in a very ugly way. Uh, actually, the other one in a very ugly way. Uh, the ugliest of ways that we'll see. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, then uh, uh, both, uh, let's see, uh, uh, Antinous will mistreat the beggar. So will Eurymachus and also a man named Leodes will throw an ox hook at him. And so the suitors will get what's coming to them soon enough. In any case, the stranger Odysseus says, but why are these suitors in your home? Do all the men of your island hate you? Why is it that they're there? And, Od and Telemachus will have to go through the story of how he has a dad named Odysseus, and he had a beautiful wife named Pelin 
Penelope, but Odysseus has been gone, and we don't know if he's dead or not, and so these suitors have come here, and over the last three years, they've tried to marry Penelope, but she made this web that she would unweave at night, but then they figured out her that she'd been doing that, and then they demanded that she marry, and that's kind of where they're at right now. And he, he takes some pride in the fact that, uh, uh, and uh, one of the questions Odysseus says is, don't you have some brothers? And uh, Telemachus says, unfortunately, I come from a line where only single sons are had. There was this guy named Arcasius, which means bear man, who had the son Laertes, uh, who had the son Odysseus, who then had the single son Telemachus. He says, I'm a single son of a single son. Uh, and so that's sort of how it is. And all these uh, suitors are great men from the surrounding islands that are ruled by Odysseus. So know that it's not just Ithaca, but it's sort of an archipelago. There are a bunch of little islands around there called Zacanthos, same, Same, some people say Dulichion and Neritos. And that since Penelope is caught between two choices, everybody in the, on the island is in limbo, in that sort of hellish state that I talked about, uh, referencing Dante's Inferno earlier. Well, Telemachus orders Eumaeus to tell Penelope that he is home. Um, Eumaeus asks, what about your grandfather, Laertes? Telemachus says, no, have Penelope send Euryclea, and then Eumaeus leaves, and then we are going to have a major recognition scene, but not until next week.